Welcome to episode 11 of TASA's Inspiring Leaders Podcast. I'm Eric Simpson, and on today's episode, we're exploring the cybersecurity threats facing Texas districts. We'll hear from Jeff Burke and Buddy Denman about Splendora ISD's experience with one of the biggest ransomware perpetrators to hit the United States. The email read, hello, Splendora ISD. This is the dark overlord. We'd like to start negotiations with your school district before this gets out of hand. We'll also visit with Clear Creek ISD Chief Technology Officer Robert Bayard about how his district tries to protect itself from this issue that targets large and small districts alike. Stick around. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Scholastic. Scholastic believes the development of robust literacy skills is at the very heart of empowering children to thrive in school and in life. That's why they create literacy solutions that support the whole child in the classroom, at home, and in the community. From transformative research-based literacy instruction to expert professional development and groundbreaking family and community engagement, they're with you every step of the way on the path to literacy. See what Scholastic Education has to offer at www.scholastic.com, and we'll have a link in our show notes. In the latest issue of TASA's journal Insight, Daisha Rivers writes, Ransomware attacks are the biggest cybersecurity threat to school districts. Splendor RISD experienced their own attack early in the ransomware phenomenon, along with scores of other districts in subsequent years. Today, we talk with Splendor ISD Superintendent Jeff Burke and his Director of Technology, Buddy Denman. Jeff Burke, Buddy Denman, welcome to the Inspiring Leaders Podcast. Glad to be here. You know, Splendora experienced its own attack, as we've said, in September of 2017 or thereabouts. Um, can you walk us through kind of how you figured out there was even a problem? Well, let me set the stage for how I found out, and uh, then I'll turn it over to Buddy, who really was responsible for uh, handling the network side of it and, and getting us out of this mess. And so I had gone home uh, for lunch, I believe, and I received a call from the FBI, which, you know, is scary in itself. And the agent on the phone told me that we had been a victim of a cyber attack. Upon receiving that call, I think I immediately got in touch with Buddy. Uh, I think he was already on top of it, already knew what was happening. It just, it really was a situation that unfolded very quickly and um, kind of spiraled from there, you know, in terms of being prepared for that response and prepared for what we needed to do after that. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of, um, it, was, it was very muddy at the time, uh, but I can tell you, had it not been for Buddy and his staff, uh, we could have been in a lot worse situation. So I'm going to turn it over to Buddy to talk a little bit about the specifics of, of what actually happened. Yeah, Buddy, um, go ahead. So the the actual attack on the infrastructure took place in June of that year. Um, we just didn't know the extent of what it was. Um, I was working in my office one morning, and our systems administrator Ryan Hamilton came into my office, and he said, "Hey." did you install a bunch of strange applications on one of our servers, like a bunch of browsers and things? And I said, no, I haven't been on the servers at all. So I log in and take a look. Sure enough, uh, when looking at the um, scheduled tasks, there was all kinds of crazy scheduled tasks that were, that were created on our servers. It was a lot of random browsers that were installed, but then there was also some other things that I didn't recognize. So I just started removing them immediately. I didn't know what it was. And then I looked and I saw that we had an active connection open on one of our servers, which was logged in as like an old service account that had administrative abilities from years and years ago. And it was actively creating 
um, district administrator accounts in our on our server, and it was creating a lot of them, like over and over and over. My immediate thought when I saw everything was there was a malware. It was infected with some kind of malware, and something was going off and running its script. So I just made the call. It was the middle of summer. There wasn't a lot of use anyway. Pulled the plug on everything. Pulled the network. Pulled the plug on the network. Um, took the servers down. We started running hundreds of scans with different tools on all of our servers trying to figure out what it found. And it found a lot of stuff. It confirmed that there was a lot of malware on there. And we removed it all. Um, we went through all of the administrative accounts that it was created and we removed those. Um, we found the service accounts that they were using as kind of like a backdoor, um, and we removed those. We, we, it was, uh, we did it all in one day and it, uh, we just like nonstop, like didn't stop until it was finished. Cause it's kind of scary seeing that stuff happen on your network. Um, and then we turned everything on we started monitoring it. We monitored it really closely to see if anything weird was happening. Nothing happened again. So it was, it was like, okay you know, some weird malware, we got to get that taken care of. But at the time, we also did have some really old servers. We even had one, uh, like, 2000, server 2003 machine that was still up and running, and it was a, a network storage server that the district was heavily using still at the time. And then, you know, of course, we, we get the call from the FBI in September, hey, uh, expect someone to reach out to you because you've been hacked. Someone's going to try and get money from you. And, I think it was an hour later that we, we received an email that was just titled extortion. The email read, um, I just pulled it up. It read, hello, Splendor ISD. This is the dark overlord. We, we're aware that you've already been contacted by the FBI. They've told you that we've breached you. Yes, it is all true. We'd like to start negotiations with your school district before this gets out of hand. We love a thorough breach. You have 24 hours before we escalate write us back, your friends, the Dark Overlord. And then he leaves the PS, and that PS was the credentials of the uh, service account used to uh, get into that server that we saw back in June. Just like clicked, you know, it was like, oh, that was not malware, that was an active attack on our network. But I felt pretty confident that we, that we took care of it quickly, and I don't think they had a lot of time in there. You know, the emails just kept coming because FBI told us just completely ignore them because school districts at the time that were also getting hit, um, they were actually opening up negotiations and communicating. Some of them were paying large sums of money, but it wasn't changing anything. Whatever data had been stolen from the district was getting released anyway out, out to the public. Whenever you started receiving those emails, it seemed like everything was as kind of business as normal with your tech whenever you first were, were contacted? Yeah, when we were first were contacted, nothing was out of the ordinary. Everything was running perfectly fine. The only thing that had happened um, was I think the day before we had received that email, someone had went to our website and did like, an anonymous tip saying that, um, I think it was like, see you at the poll morning or something. And they said they were going to drive by with AK-47s and kill everyone that was outside and things like that. But we we found out through the FBI that that was kind of the MO of this group. They they did send anonymous tips in through websites that were scare tactics. And if they did, if they got information of parents, like contact information of parents, they did that same thing, but to the parents of the children to, to try and scare them 
into pressuring the school to pay money. Now this didn't happen to us because we found out later that they didn't have time to get any parent contact information, but in other districts it had happened. So we were warned by the FBI, tell, you know, make your public uh, aware. And this is where Dr. Burke stepped in kind of heavily with the public communication. So Jeff, well, I don't want to jump too, too far ahead about, about the response because so, you know, you, you've been advised to kind of ignore these, to not begin negotiations by, by the FBI. At the time, did you know that this was something that was going on with um, district, other districts in Texas? The FBI gave me a couple of contacts of other districts, not necessarily in Texas, a district that had been, that had been uh, similarly attacked. And I actually talked to their superintendent. I think this was like day two of all this. And uh, he said, just like, Buddy uh, referred to that parents were getting texts with their children's names. And the, the, the texts and emails they were getting were horribly graphic. You know, I won't go into the details of them, but they were uh, very, very graphic. And so yet parents were keeping their kids home from school. They, they had run a big story in their newspaper about it. And so at that time, you know, even though the FBI, FBI had said, uh, ignore it, you know, we didn't know what was coming. We didn't know what they had. So one of the things that was strange, and I remember we were in our district leadership team meeting, and we got, I want to say we got the second email or maybe the first email, I can't remember which, which email it was, I think we got a series of four or five, but the, the superintendent that was included was the superintendent from seven, eight years ago. So at that point, we felt like they had old data, but we didn't know the extent, or at least I didn't know the extent of what they had, and so we did a series of communications with our, with our families and, and, you know, not being able to tell them that definitively this is what we're doing we're just saying you need to watch out for this we were very upfront that we had been hacked and that we were working on it but we didn't feel like there was any imminent danger um and, and at that time it was all about bitcoin right i think they had mm -hmm. they had extorted this other district for around 50 or sixty thousand dollars, and they were doing the same thing according to the fbi to soft targets is what they what they call them school districts <laughs> which is funny police stations there were police stations across the country. I never thought they would be soft targets. Um, colleges and universities, I think Region 11 uh, was also hacked. Uh, I talked to somebody at Region 11 about, the, about this around that same time. So it was really just a, uh, you know, not knowing what was coming next. You know, the unknown sometimes can be the scariest thing, right? Buddy, you were able to tie the um, activity in June to these you know, these letters and communications, you know, uh, in, in the early fall. So talk us through a little bit about kind of the, the next steps and how you, how, how this escalated. The escalation was really just from the emails and, and there wasn't so much of an escalation of things as it was just an escalation of scare tactics of them sending the next email saying time's up or tick tock, you know, this is <clears throat> things like that. So I felt very comfortable that they didn't have any of our data, but I wasn't going to be the person that said, hey, they don't have any of our data, and then all of our data gets released, and I'm, I, and I'm like, oops. <laughs> so uh, the biggest blessing, really, I think, as far as how we discovered what they actually had was our, was our insurance in the school district. Um, we had very thorough um, cybersecurity insurance that was part of our insurance plan. And what it basically allowed us to do was to pay the, the minimum of $50,000, but then it covered up to a million dollars of 
um, services and support. And with that, we were able to get in touch with, a, it was a, a data forensics team, a very, very well-known data forensics team um, that we wouldn't have been able to afford their services any other way, but through our insurance. And um, we worked with them for probably a month, um, just like pulling servers out of the racks, letting them connect to them. Um, we created closed networks to allow them to connect into our servers and do the scans, and they were very thorough. Um, we had twice a week meetings, Tuesdays and Thursday meetings that I had with this company. Um, and, and during those meetings, they just laid out exactly where they were at in the process, what they had found, um, and also gave me any um, kind of marching orders going forward of what I needed to do. But as the investigation concluded with the data forensic team, um, it, they basically sat me down and said, here's exactly, we, they could trace the file paths that they took when they got in to see exactly where they went and what they accessed. And they were in our system I want to say for a total of 14 minutes before they were removed, they made it to one folder in that um, that old 2003 server I was telling you that that uh, was still in use had a bunch of data in it, a bunch of financial data. But I had I had just three months ago before this happened, three months before that June, I had asked our business. Uh, department to start moving their business files onto a cloud-based security program and off of that old 2003 server onto our Google Drive base um, and they had done it. So there was a folder that said financial information but it was completely empty and that was all they did. They went into looking for those file paths trying to find something like financial information. They found a folder called that, they clicked in it and it was empty and they didn't go anywhere else before they were removed. And shortly after that, what the FBI told us was that when they when they go out to Twitter and they call you out on Twitter, that's when you know they're done messing with you because that's where they post links to your data usually, like district school data, even districts that had paid them. They said they'll go on Twitter and they'll say, hey, we're the dark overlord and this is what we did to this school district and here's the links and you can see all their data and it's basically just links to all of their student data. And, uh, teacher data, parent data. So we were called out on Twitter uh, by the Dark Overlord, but it, it all it said was, uh, this is the Dark Overlord, and, and we were responsible for the vivacious attack on Splendor ISD, and that was it. And we never heard anything else again after that. Did you guys ever figure out exactly how um, you were targeted and how you were, how you were accessed? Yeah, that, that was part of the forensics investigation was finding out the, the root of how they got in. Um, and it all came down to an old Destiny Follett server. Destiny Follett is a, a, a library program for where library books are inventoried and managed. Uh, we hosted it locally here before they moved to like a cloud-based version. But that server was later reused turned into something else, but it stayed on our network. And what we found out was there was a lot of black market information that was out there that basic or dark web information that was out there um, about different Destiny Fallout servers and points that you could connect to with that connection information. That server was uh, 
it ended up being the culprit. It, it was still, it wasn't a destiny server anymore, but it was being utilized for something else. During that time where we took, in June, when we took all the servers down, it's, it was the first time that we had ever literally taken every server offline and had to evaluate every server. So it was a really good time for me during that process to look and say, what needs to go back up? Like if it's not, if, if it's just some old thing running some old program that isn't utilized anymore, then we're not racking it. We're not gonna keep supporting the server. But I did, I pulled it out of our uh, storage area whenever we were, had the data forensics team looking at everything and they looked at it and that ended up being the root of how they came in. And then from there, they just use RDP brute force tools to move from server to server. Did, did you ever find out what made y'all susceptible besides the server? Like, how did they know you had the server? I mean, do they go around kind of just testing, you know, almost like oh, trying to open unlock doors? The, from what we were told, it, the information of every vulnerable server was available for sale on the dark web. And they were able to purchase basically a list and say these the all of these machines are vulnerable and, and active basically so from from there they just go through the list our forensic uh, team part of what we paid for was several dark web searches trying to find our information on it and i believe that was one that they found was the uh, the destiny fallet backdoor infrastructure um, issue Wow. If your colleague hadn't noticed this weird activity in the middle of the summer and hadn't brought that to your attention, then that would have sat dormant until they decided to pull the trigger and, and start capturing data. Yeah. The moment those application softwares and those random browsers start getting installed on the server, that is their like active attack moment. You know, it just, it just happened to be that he was working in those servers if that didn't happen, we would have been in a way worse place. What was more helpful to you, the, the insurance and the forensics work through there or uh, FBI? And, and did local law enforcement ever get involved? Uh, no, it was just straight federal. But I, I can tell you that the FBI was, was no help whatsoever. And, and they, they told us up front, they said, we will not help you because we have people in the FBI in this inner circle of hacking this hacking group and they did not want to compromise anything so we paid we paid a fifty thousand uh, dollar we paid fifty thousand dollars to to access our uh, our full insurance you know the million dollar insurance claim and i want to say by the time it was all said and done it was around three hundred and fifty thousand um, but again we only spent the fifty thousand just to sit on that for just a moment i mean a an attack that ended up being, thankfully, um, minor compared to some other attacks, even that minor attack to make sure that you weren't susceptible and that your people were protected, you still, it still cost you $50,000 plus whatever time that you and your team were working on. Uh, you know, uh, Jeff, I'm sure this took up quite a lot of, of your day. What have you learned from going through this, um, you know, this attack and what do you anticipate in the future with um, cybersecurity threats for, for Splendora? Um, well, <clears throat> I've said quite often that being cyber attacked is the best thing to happen to our infrastructure here in the district because 
we changed everything. Part of working with the forensics team was that list of vulnerabilities like you mentioned. It was part of every meeting. Hey, we found, we found these vulnerabilities. Can you take care of them? We were able to replace all of our old servers and we made everyone start uh, using their Google Drive cloud storage because Google Drive cloud storage is a million more times secure than I could ever make anything locally here hosted. We also introduced a brand new end user uh, security client. We upgraded our firewall. I think that's about the extent of the of the changes, but it was a good, it was more money than I think ever since the beginning of IT and Splendor ISD has been put into just infrastructure alone at one time. The, that was kind of the key thing that I kept taking from these meetings with the FBI and with the forensic company is that they, they don't target districts that are going to be a complication for them. They go for low hanging fruit type um, districts. You know, if it, if everything looks simple and they've got some 2003 servers that they can get into really easily that are, are not getting security updates anymore because they're so old, things like that, um, then they're going to go for that. Why, why would they try and get through a firewall and trying to get through some of the newer security on the newer servers when they could just do this and be easier? So. Jeff, last question is for you. How has this changed the way that you think about safety and security at the district level? Well, I think it's just, as Buddy mentioned, just having that systems review process in place, right? Always making sure that your people know what to do in those situations. And what, you know, when he was finishing up, I was thinking about, you know, we still get phishing emails and that, man, we're, we are alert and attuned to those now. And so if it's something that even seems a little, uh, fishy, pardon the pun, you know, we send that right to Buddy, right? And so I think it just raised our awareness level. You tend to think, oh, we're a small district, you know, we're kind of safe because we're not one of the big fish, but when that happens, it really makes you aware that, you know, we're vulnerable too, and we need to be taking the steps to make sure that we're protecting ourselves, whether it be a cyber attack or whether it be a, you know, a physical attack or anything like that. I think it just really made us vigilant. And I think that was the message we tried to get across to the, to Region 6 was, you know, make sure you guys are actively looking. Yeah, server checks are now a calendar event in our in my department just because uh, of, of what happened. Absolutely. Well, Buddy Denman, Jeff Burke, thank you so much for being on the Inspiring Leaders podcast. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having us. As evidenced in Splendora's experience, even a fairly benign attack can prove costly. Though their breach was through an old server, an estimated 65 to 75% of cyber attacks originate from email phishing schemes. As Rivers writes in her article, it only takes one person clicking a phishing link one time to allow that hacker access to every device on the system. Splendor ISD has approximately 4,200 students and about 500 staff, but how do larger systems, say like Clear Creek ISD that has 42,000 students and around 5,000 staff, how do they possibly stay on top of a threat that seems to multiply by the number of people who have daily access to the system? Our guest, Robert Bayard, is the Chief Technology Officer in Clear Creek ISD. He's an innovator in the field of education and has worked to keep the district on top of the newest technology. Bayard is passionate about cybersecurity and he's always eager to share his successes and challenges in service to other leaders. Robert Bayard, welcome to the Inspiring Leaders Podcast. Thank you, Eric. Good to be with you. As Chief Technology Officer um, of Clear Creek, we, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about you know, the how the general environment of cybersecurity right now, what keeps you up at night um, as you consider the cybersecurity threats? And uh, what's the nightmare scenario for, for districts like yours? 
Sure. I, I'll start with the nightmare scenario. And the nightmare scenario is, is to have uh, some type of a ransomware attack that takes down our entire district and, and renders our technology useless. You know, today, everything revolves around technology, whether it's watering our, our lawns or running the air conditioning um, or, or operating our laptops. And so that's what that, that's probably the, the main risk that that I that I'm concerned about you know, on a day to day basis, though, it's have we done enough training for our end users? Are our end users utilizing the training that we've provided over the years? So what do you think makes the largest difference? Is it, is it training or is it the, the things that a district buys you know, for technology and for security? I think it's threefold. I think number one, uh, when a district purchases uh, technology, typically software, to make sure that the, the privacy practices are in place, by that third party or by, by that software service. Um, in terms of hardware, I think what matters is, are, are, there, are there policies and filtering practices in place to ensure that our end users are, are held safe on the back end? And then I think third is, are end users practicing good, safe cybersecurity um, protocols that, that we've been trying to train them on for, for years? So it's, it's not a one, one size fits all, it's, it's, a, it's a three pronged approach. Well, I mean, school, schools are in a tough spot when it comes to tech. Um, they have to spend money on, on quality technology. They then have to, of course, you know, train people how to use it, not just uh, safely, but also effectively for instruction. Um, so what elements leaves a district kind of most open to attack? You know, the, the type of device doesn't necessarily matter. Um, for us, what matters most is the filtering that happens. And we have, we have filtering on the device. Um, so it doesn't matter where a student is, whether they are at home or in the district or at the mall, their, their, their devices are being filtered. That also helps us work with our principals because our principals are able to capture where our students have been and what they're on to help with sort of the day-to-day -day reports that, that they might need. And then we also have filtering on our firewall in addition to plenty of other practices that, that I'm not going to divulge here. Sure, no. <laughs> matter of cybersecurity. You know, whenever we think about filtering, you know, we think about content filtering, we think about, oh, let's make sure that kids can't access something that's, that's harmful. But the, the uh, other side of that filtering, it seems, is uh, making sure that you're not uh, penetrable by outside, you know, by bad actors. That's um, correct. So whenever you're, you're trying to make sure that you're not vulnerable, what are the warning signs that you're looking for that your system might be compromised? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the best things a district can do is, is to have an external audit performed on, on their technology systems from, from two sides, from an external lens and from an internal lens. We had an external audit performed just, uh, just recently, and I'm quite proud of my team because they knew exactly when, um, when this auditor entered our system and they were able to track this auditor and, and they were ready to shut him down early on, but to, to get the full report of, of what we were vulnerable to, they, they allowed him to navigate through our system. One of the ways the auditor finally entered our system is by guessing a password. And all they did was they took 10 random employees and started guessing passwords. And I'll tell you the password <laughs> because we blocked it. Right. The password was spring 2020. I am always amazed at how simple passwords people use. Um, 
You know, I, I read a report recently that said 93% of employees recycle old passwords. 93%. Wow. That's where people are vulnerable. I think people think that they're not vulnerable because they're not, um, they're not visible. You know, it's, well, I mean, who's looking at Eric Simpson over at TASA? Uh, I guarantee you nobody's looking at, at me. But as you were saying there, okay, people are grabbing random people in these organizations and sending something you know, to them or, or trying to guess their, their password. I understand where people are with, well, I mean, gosh, we've got all these different passwords to remember. Is, is there anything that districts can use to help encourage better password practices? Because that seems to be a glaring weakness. I think the best thing a district can do is to provide a list of the most common passwords. Every time I show the list, I, I, I always ask everyone to take a look at those passwords and immediately change their password after the training session. Number two is, is, is blocking some of those common passwords on, on the back end so that they're, they're not allowed. You made me chuckle when you said, no one cares about Eric Simpson. I, I just, I, I work for TASA and nobody even knows I exist. Well, that kind of mentality is what most people have. That is that, that, that apathy that it's just me. No one knows who I am. Nobody cares. And yet, why would anyone think that Microsoft is calling you because they think you have a problem? <laughs> or Apple. Apple doesn't care about any of us, right? We're just small fish in the pond. Apple is not going to call us. Microsoft is not going to call us to say we have a problem with our computers. And yet people fall for it. And so as long as people fall for it, we will continue these phishing attacks. And all it takes is one or two to make people tens of thousands of dollars at a time. How have you all protected um, yourselves from phishing attacks? And you know, how, how, do you, how do you train people to make sure that they aren't following some of these? Because it seems like the phishing attacks get more and more sophisticated. Um, how, how have you um, tried to work with your staff to make sure that they're identifying these before they're a threat? Sure. So these malicious actors have definitely gotten hooked on phonics, right? <laughs> the, the misspellings, that, was, that used to be an easy telltale sign that people used to fall for anyway. No longer are there misspellings or grammatical errors. They are mimicking uh, organizations by using the exact same logos. Uh, they are using a display name in a large organization. All it takes is just a couple, it doesn't matter the size of the organization. All it takes sure. is one person to respond. Uh, the, the, the most common one is the gift card email. You know, I need gift cards, I'm in a meeting. And you, know, you, you ask me, what do we do? It's training every year by providing these real life examples. And I ask everyone who I visit with, have you ever sat in a meeting where somebody in your meeting said, you know what, we need a gift card. We don't need it tonight. We need it right now. Right now, let's email someone. Let's email an entire faculty saying, we need a gift card right now. Call us right away. It's an emergency. No one does that. And so we lose sight of that common sense. We are most vulnerable in education because we are nice people. Mm -hmm. And we are, we are pleasers. And we want to please those who we work for. Um, we, we like those who we work with. And so we will do everything to help them. What do you ask people to do whenever they see something that looks a little suspicious? What do you ask people to do to try to make sure that you're able to see some of these threats coming and communicate them to others? Sure. We, we've set up an email address for, for our staff members to submit their emails when they think it's, it's uh, possibly malicious. The reason why we want our staff members to send us those emails that they think might be malicious or phishing because as soon as the first person send it to us, we can take a look at it, evaluate it, if, and decide if it is phishing. We will block that email from all of our servers 
and actually pull the email from email mailboxes. Have you seen advances in protecting public entities like school districts from cyber attacks? What's out there that can help districts anticipate threats before they are compromised? And who, who do you depend on for your learning? Sure. Uh, one thing that all school districts should do is, is have at least one person from their technology teams um, be part of, of the FBI's InfraGuard. Uh, the FBI InfraGuard is a great organization that uh, keeps us informed about the latest cybersecurity threats, what to be aware of, and, and how to protect ourselves. Um, there should be someone on staff who goes through continuous training of how to update systems, uh, make sure that you're running the latest software uh, checks and, and um, updates. All those things are necessary to keep our end users safe. Cybersecurity threats increase every day uh, and become more sophisticated every day. And so we have to continue uh, learning and then, and then turning that around to train. Well, Robert Baird, thank you so much for being a part of the Inspiring Leaders podcast. Have a great rest of your semester and stay cybersecurity safe. Thanks to Robert Baird for sharing his expertise on the podcast. We have a link to InfraGuard, the FBI program that Baird mentioned in our show notes. If you haven't read Daisha Rivers' article in the fall issue of Insight, check it out for even more information about what districts are facing on the cybersecurity front. We thank all of you for tuning in to the TASA Inspiring Leaders podcast. We're excited to bring you new episodes throughout November, so be sure to look for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Thanks to Jeff Burke and Buddy Denman for sharing their story this episode. And until next time, from all of us at TASA World Headquarters, stay safe, stay healthy, and for goodness sake, go out and vote.